commandments served in a way that intended to govern all humanity, especially God's people in his church, to lay before us a summary of all of God's laws and ten moral statements, also to show us how we are to love God and love our neighbor. And so if I want someone to say, how am I supposed to love God? You worship him alone. You don't worship him by images. You hold his name as precious, and you hold his day as precious, the Sabbath day. How am I supposed to love other people? Well, you love other people by honoring your mother and father in all authority. You protect life without murdering. You honor marriages, and you pursue biblical sexuality by staying away from adultery. You don't steal. But you have contentedness in what God has given you, which means you also work hard. You don't lie. You love truth wherever it is, and you don't covet you are content and thankful in what God has given you. And that's how you love others. And so God has not only summarized, this is what it looks like to love God and love others, but in doing that and sending his son Jesus, has summarized who Jesus is. And so as we talked about last week, the Ten Commandments are not only a blueprint of who God is, but even more specifically, in the full revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ, the Ten Commandments, all ten of them are 100% first and foremost, about him and what he has done for us. Um, if you want to go read, a, it's actually a short article. It's um, one of those things that, that really every Christian should read. Um, go and read Martin Luther's short, um, I guess you could call it essay, on prayer. Um, he wrote it for his barber, um, I'd say his hairdresser. And so his hairdresser was talking to Luther and said, you know, Professor Luther, how, I don't know, what am I supposed to do about prayer? And so Luther went home and, and wrote a short treatise on prayer for his barber. And so we, we still have it. And um, one of the things he encourages is to work your way through the Ten Commandments. To see what the Ten Commandments say about God. To see what the Ten Commandments say about us and how we've fallen short of God's law. To see what the Ten Commandments say about Jesus and how he has fulfilled on our behalf where we have fallen short and sinned. To see how the Ten Commandments, fourthly, encourage us in thankfulness for what Christ has done to live a life that honors God by that commandment. And so Luther works through each commandment looking at those four things. What does it say about God? What does it say about our sin? What does it say about Jesus? And what does it say about Christian living? So if you have a great thing, go and read um, on uh, a rainy um, Sunday afternoon. So this morning, we're picking up where we left off last week, where I, in general, talked about Exodus 27, the third commandment and was showing you how God saying to honor his name and not take his name in vain was the heart of practical Christianity. It wasn't just that you shouldn't cuss, you shouldn't use ex expletives that use God's name, um, using God's name in vain. Certainly that is included in that, but that God's name includes his character and all of his works, which sums up the whole of redemptive history and all of biblical doctrine. So for people who teach false doctrine, they're taking God's name in vain. They're taking what God has revealed truly about himself and twisting it. For people who don't walk in God's ways, they're taking God's name in vain because God has declared to all men, as Romans 1 says, his character and his power. For Christians that walk in unrepentant sin, they're taking God's name in vain because they're taking God's name upon themselves and aren't living as his servants. And so we looked at that last week. This morning, we're going specifically to see how God has set a specific and unique name 
on Jesus the Christ and how, as we've talked about, and Luther taught his hairdresser, um, that the Ten Commandments are 100% um, about Jesus. And so a little bit of introduction, you maybe remember, I'm trying to remember how long ago this was, and it's probably much, old, much longer than I thought it was because I'm much older than I think that I am. Um, but if you remember the WWJD thing that Christians went through for a while, um, what would Jesus do and little bracelets um, that, that they wore around, I want to say that was late high school um, for me. I want to say that that was kind of, which would be what, kind of the, the, the mid-90s, late 90s, what, WWJD? Um, kind of this, you know, we're going to be all about Jesus, and we need this upsurgence, a resurgence of, of remembering, you know, what the Christian's about. We're going to ask the question, what would Jesus do, and we're going to do that. You know, even more recently, we've seen people and declare themselves no longer to be Christians, um, but to be Christ followers, um, that somehow folks have thought that the name Christian had been watered down and maybe empty religiosity or whatever else. And so instead of saying, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm, going, I'm going to say that I am a, I am a Christ follower, using Jesus' name Christ rather than Christian. And a follower of Christ is going to be some way that Christians are going to redefine themselves around the name of Jesus. Now, we could go through and look at those two movements, and I think if we were honest about them, um, that both of them had a, a good heart to them, rather sincere, wanting to be all about Jesus, but um, there was a lot of faddishness about them, and rather shallow um, in their, their look at Jesus. But looking at that, and considering, hey, we're taking the name of Jesus, and there's something about the name of Jesus, and wanting to constantly reorient ourselves around the name of Christ and who Jesus is, there's something very biblical about that that doesn't devolve into faddishness or a shallow view of Jesus, but is the very heart of Christianity and the heart of the Bible, that there is something uniquely wonderful, precious, great about the name of Jesus. So I'm going to read to us Exodus 20, verse 7. Flip over to Philippians 2. Read Philippians 2. Look. A passage that you'll be, um, you'll be familiar with. You sang about it already, um, that at some point every knee um, is going to bow um, at the name of Jesus. Um, and then um, and we'll, we'll look at those two texts together, and then in a few minutes also take a look um, at Isaiah um, 45. And so this is Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished, who takes his name in vain. Now, if you want to turn in your copy of God's Word over to um, Philippians um, chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 down to um, 11. I'm working from the New American Standard Version, and so what you're going to notice what that version does for passages that are drawn from the Old Testament, puts them all in caps, and so you'll notice that um, towards the end of this particular reading. And that portion in caps is actually from Isaiah 45, which is where we'll get to eventually. So Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because this is God's word, let's pray now as we consider it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truthfulness that's in it in every passage and that every part of your word is about Jesus the Christ, the one upon whom the name that is above every name has been placed, the one that we worship. So would you show us Christ as we look at your word this morning? We pray and we ask in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So you already see uh, the relationship between Exodus 20 and Philippians 2. Um, God throughout scripture was revealing who he is and at times would, when he's done something new or wanted to reveal a new aspect of his character would reveal a new, would reveal a new name um, about himself. And so God's called by all kinds of things. You know, if you ever want to do um, a, a fun search or study or even if your community group is looking for something too, just to go through the names of God. That God is the great I am. God is the Lord. God is the provider. All the different passages that talk about the name of God and in his character. We get to Philippians 2 and we find two things. One, that through Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty and fully and truly man, God has accomplished the greatest work. And so God has come as a man fully and truly man, we see that, though he did not despise um, God, he came down and took on the form of man, perfectly sinless, but 100% man in the incarnation, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law in full, at the crucifixion, bled and died, not only took upon himself the wrath of God for the breach of God's law for all those for whom he died, all those who would profess God's name, but also presented to God a perfect record of righteousness, the record of righteousness he had earned through his earthly ministry as the perfect man. It was both his active and passive righteousness. He was actively righteous in fulfilling the law on our behalf. He was passively righteous in that he suffered for us and for our sins, taking our sins upon us and placing his righteousness, um, taking our sins upon him and taking his righteousness and placing it on us. And then he did not stay in the grave, but rose again to new life. Those are the greatest events that have ever happened in human history. There are none other. All the historians who have ever studied history, bad news, nothing greater is happening. The greatest has already happened. It wasn't D-Day, even though that that was awesome. It wasn't the day that you got married, even though I thought that that was awesome. It wasn't the day that you had the birth of your first child, even though I'm sure that that was awesome. It wasn't the day that your unranked team beat a number 16 in the country, even though that was awesome. The most awesome thing that has ever occurred is the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And you see that what God did for this reason, the text says, for this reason, God the Father bestowed on Christ the Son the name that is above every name. So the person who accomplished the greatest work also was given the greatest name that has ever been given. 
and the result of the bestowal of that name, as we read here in Scripture, is that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is not in a voluntary way, but in a non-voluntary way. It is in an obligatory way. One way, one day, every single thing that was created by God will give full honor to Jesus for who he is. Will bend the knee and confess that Jesus is the Christ. Christians will bend the knee as they do now and confess that Jesus is the Christ as the recipients of God's grace and mercy, lending glory to God as the one who didn't have to, but decided to have mercy, to love sinners who didn't deserve it, and to redeem those sinners for himself. Those who have not placed their name, their faith in Jesus, will bend the knee and will profess that Jesus is the Christ to their eternal judgment and destruction, to the full glory of our God who is just and does all things well. Even the angels themselves, as it says, in heaven and on earth, those angels who did not fall with the fall of Satan will bend the knee and profess that Jesus is God Almighty. Those demons who fell with Satan and Satan himself, created spiritual beings, will bend the knee and will profess as they already do that Jesus is the Christ. We see all through the New Testament that demons certainly professed what was true about God. They just hated him for it. We see legion coming. Yeah, you are Jesus. You are the king. And Jesus can shut them up and send them wherever he wants to. And so one day at the name of Jesus, at this unique name that God has given, we'll look to see whether what that unique name is in just a second, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So again, just in Philippians 2, we see the exclusivity of the Christian gospel, and we see the full deity of Jesus the Christ. There is only one way to God, savingly, and that is through faith in Jesus. Every way is going to end up at God. Muslims are going to get to God. Buddhists are going to get to God. Atheists are going to get to God. Agnostics are going to get to God. Everyone's going to get to God. I mean, the most idiotic religion is going to get to God. I hear that the Star Wars religion is on the rise in Australia. It doesn't bode well for Australia. That There are people who self-designate on their taxes that they are Jedis. They are, you can go and look it up. And all that silliness, the Jedis are going to make it to God too. There are only those who have faith in Jesus and repenting of their sins that are going to make it to God and know and receive full forgiveness for their sins. Everyone else will face God without the covering of Jesus. Will face God and declare what they've done in this life and, feel, and receive the justice due for their sins. We see that clearly in this chapter. Now, the question is, from the text, because it's somewhat not clear, somewhat not clear, what is the name? that God the Father bestowed on the Son? What's the name that is above every name that goes along with the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus? What is the name that's above every name that at the end of days we'll see at the mention of that name, every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus 
is the Lord. What's, what's the name? There are lots of names that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Now, we get our clue in the mention of Isaiah 45. Now, again, Old Testament, hugely valuable. As you do your own study of God's word on your own, read the Old Testament. Read it all the way through. It would be great to read the Old Testament through, front to back. Um, one of my own practices, I have a list, um, just a, it's a really long list, of all the times the New Testament quotes an Old Testament verse. And whenever I get a new Bible, I go through the Old Testament. I have a little orange um, colored pencil, a little pro tip. Um, colored pencils are great for marking up your Bible. And I go through the Old Testament, and every part where the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, I just put an orange scribble um, on it. I, I kind of mark through that. And so when I read through the Old Testament, I see all the orange, and I see all the places that the New Testament authors drew upon the Old Testament to describe what Jesus had done and what God was doing in the history and in their history of redemption and what God's up to um, in the church. It's a great, great practice. We see that here in this passage as the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians about Jesus. He shows us how we can discover what the unique name is that God the Father gave to Jesus the Son because of the great work that he accomplished and in preview of that great day of the return of Jesus and the great judgment where he'll be declared the just and justifier of those whose faith in Christ. And so um, you see there um, towards the end of Philippians 2 and verse 10 um, the quotation of Isaiah 45. If we turn over to Isaiah 45, I'll read to you um, verses 18 through 23. Um, you should know we're getting into to Christmas time, um, Handel's Messiah. Um, Isaiah 40 is one of those key passages. Um, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are really, really discouraging. You ever try and read Isaiah all the way through? Um, you're going to be pretty depressed for, for the first 39. Isaiah 40, there's the big switch about talking about the coming of John the Baptist and what God's going to do and every valley is going to be lifted and every mountain is going to be made low and the great coming and all then it switches and the rest of Isaiah is really, really encouraging. Um, and so even, even if you want to, you could do this. You could do the thing like read the end of the book first. So read Isaiah 45 through 66 and then go read all the way through the book just so you kind of know what's coming up. So Isaiah 45, you're five chapters into the great revelation of God's mercy and greatness after labored through 39 chapters of pretty discouraging chronicling of human sin. And we get to verse 18, where God is um, talking. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Here's God. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I have spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? 
And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, will be justified and will glory. It is almost as if we were reading the same thing, but veiled. Do you, do you hear the same themes in Isaiah 45, as Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. Did you hear the refrain of what God said? I am the Lord and there is no other. He said it multiple times. I am the exclusive God. Judaism was proudly and profoundly monotheistic. Yahweh was the only God. He wasn't just the best God among many. He was the only God. He is the only Savior, as you see him specifically saying in this chapter. He is the one who has mercy and the only one to whom you can come to receive mercy and the only one from whom you can receive righteousness. And he is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is this exclusive, this one God. We see that clearly in verse 23. And so if we're going to do a little bit of grammatical pronoun equating, we see him say, that to me, me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Who is the me there? It is Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. So when Paul is talking to the Philippian church about the great work of salvation and the exclusivity about salvation in God alone, when Paul is grasping for an Old Testament text to describe what God has done through Jesus and to describe the work of Jesus, he draws upon Isaiah 45 and reveals there the name that God has set upon Jesus the itinerant preacher Nazarene. It is Yahweh Almighty. The, the me before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is an exclusive belief of, G of Christians and sets us apart from every other no upstart heretical you know, Mormons don't believe that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that not at all and so one of the big deals about Christianity is that this is what we believe about Jesus 100% God of the Old Testament does the Bible teach that anywhere else absolutely it does we're gonna look briefly at Mark 1 I'll just take two of the places that this is um, mentioned I'll read to you from Mark 1 verses 1 through 3 we have Mark beginning his gospel, not pulling any punches, telling you who Jesus is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The second part from Isaiah, the first part is from Malachi. Um, often when two different prophets are quoted, the greater prophet is given the credit. And so he says, quoted from Isaiah, it's actually Malachi 3.1, and then also a quotation um, from Isaiah. If we were to turn just a few pages back, um, crossing over New Testament to Old Testament, and we were again to read in Malachi 3.1, behold, this is God talking, behold, I'm going to send, again, pronoun, my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So we go back to, real quick, go back to Matthew, Mark 3 and compare again. I'm doing our, our pronoun math. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. So Mark changes a me to a you. In the Malachi, the me is Yahweh. In Mark, the you is Jesus the Christ. So Mark, in the beginning of his gospel, is saying, clearly, Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Even more illustratively, back to the Gospel of John. If we were going to turn to John 18, it is, describes um, what is often looked at as a very odd passage there in the garden at Jesus' arrest. I'll read to you. And these things... Oh, that's Acts, not John. I'm sure that relates to Jesus as well, but we'll go over to John 18, um, verses starting with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met, met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And the English translation adds he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, who do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And then Jesus goes on to talk to them. Why did they draw back and fall to the ground? It is almost as if, in fact, it is that God compelled these enemies of Jesus, Judas who would betray him, Romans and Pharisees who came to arrest and murder him, compelled them to fall to the ground. Literally, they bent the knee there in the garden, the enemies of Jesus. And what did they bend the knee when he said? He said his name. And not only his name, he said the great covenant name of the Old Testament. In Exodus 3, when God revealed himself to Moses and said, Moses, you're going to go to my people, you're going to say, I'm going to redeem them from slavery in Egypt. Um, you know, Moses has a few points of questions. He said, um, which God should I say is coming? You know, what, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has come to save them. There in the garden, who do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says those same words, 
ego eimi in the Greek, and they fall to the ground. Almost as if the veil of redemptive history, for a moment, at the darkest point in what appears to be Jesus' life, right before his crucifixion, a little veil looking forward to that great day of his second coming is parted, and in the mention of Jesus' name from Jesus' lips, the covenant name, ego I, ego me, I am, his enemies fall to the ground in his midst, declaring again that Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. So as we circle back around, we see the third commandment, 100% about Jesus. And not only 100% about Jesus, 100% about all of our lives. Our lives are about bending the knee and giving praise to the Lord Jesus as our Savior now, just like we will on that day. And so the great gut check for us is, is this an encouragement to you about who Jesus is? Does this describe your life? One of the things I encourage you is at times, actually do the physical things that the Bible tells you to do. I know, I know Presbyterians are called the frozen chosen. You know, our, our preferable means of worship is, is putting our hands in our pockets. Because you know, who knows what will happen if our hands are outside of our pockets and then we're crazy and like, you know, raise up. And you know, the, the, the Bible talks about all kinds of physical gestures before the Lord God. And the Lord has made us to be physical beings, bodies and souls. It, this isn't a metaphor, bending the knee to Jesus. And it makes us so uncomfortable. Like if, if I would do that right now, I mean, many of you can't see me right now. And be like, okay, we're all uncomfortable. The pastor's on his knees. He should stand up quickly because this isn't what public speakers do. What if you started your day literally bending the knee to Jesus, if you're physically able? What if you, nobody's around, you just started your day on your knees before the Lord Jesus? Not because there's some physical magic in doing that, but you started the day just like hopefully you start the day with your soul of saying, I'm beginning my day as a servant of Jesus the Christ. I'm beginning my day as the great countdown to the return of Jesus. And that countdown ticker is going to take one day closer to that great day by the de time that I end this day. I even think about it when you break out the winter clothes and things get cold. I think, okay, we're past another summer. We're counting summers till the return of Jesus. We just got to X off one more. What does it mean for you to take all of your life and organize all of your life as the one who now and will Bend your knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. It challenges all the preconceived notions about empty religiosity. It challenges all the preconceived notions about going through the motions. It challenges us when we conceive of Christianity simply as some ethical system. We conceive of Christianity simply as some way to order our families. We conceive of Christianity as some way to arm ourselves for political discussion online. We don't see Christianity 100% as taking the name of Jesus upon ourselves, actually having been given the name of Jesus by Jesus himself and living our, our lives as bowing servants to the one who one day will cause every knee to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord.
I promise you in this, and this, this is the great temptation of Christians. You may have come in this morning and I say, or I ask you, like, how much do you know about Jesus? I know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I think I know a good bit about Jesus. If I were to say, like, what are all the different topics that you currently need to study, the ones that you're weak on? You know, we, aren't, we don't have a habit of saying, I need to study more about Jesus. So you kind of think, like, if I'm a Christian, I kind of should know everything there is to know about Jesus. Like, what we see in this book, you never get to the bottom of Jesus. Ever, ever, ever. And as we plumb the depths of Jesus, we find the practical motivation for living the rest of our lives, and we find the ways that the rest of our lives fit into Christ and who he is. And so if you're married, how you do marriage. If you're parenting, how you parent. If you have a job, how you do job. Whatever you do at the fellowship meal a little bit later, all of that has to do with one day bringing great glory as a bowing servant, having a professing tongue of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why at the heart of Christianity, the heart of Reformation, we're here in the month of October and looking at um, the Reformation and what Martin Luther did. When he looked at the Catholic Church, they had deviated away from making everything about Jesus and his glory. They had deviated away from seeing in the scriptures Christ and who he is. It wasn't that Martin Luther was some great activist. He was a Greek New Testament scholar, and he was a monk. And what he studied in the Greek New Testament and what he was asked to do as a monk, he found were increasing opposition to one another. He was living the life of a monk that said, if I perform, God will bless. If I beat myself for my sins, I can overcome sin. If I do enough, I can earn God's smile. And then he would go back after literally beating himself with leather strips beating his back to try and reduce sin in his life. He would go, because he's a professor, that was his job, he'd go and study the Greek New Testament. And as he studied the Greek New Testament, he started saying, wait, that's not what it says. This is all about Christ and what Christ has done to earn righteousness for me. A righteousness that is by faith and not by works. A righteousness that is given in full. A book that in whole and in part from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. He said, people need to know about this. They need to know what the Bible says about Jesus. Christian, Christ is our great treasure. Christ is precious to us. You will never get to the bottom of him. And if even you heard what I said, and you think, no, 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 I think I know enough about Jesus, that's like extra warning signs. Studying Christ in his fullness, seeing him in all of the scriptures, even if what it means to you, read through Philippians and get a book that has the, um, the little footnotes at the bottom that says which verses it draws on. See the ones that draw on the Old Testament and just pick one and go back and say, what does that read? What does that say about Jesus? And then ask the next question, what does that have to do with my life? And maybe you're a young mom and you're saying, Lord, I'm going to change like four diapers today. Like, how does that bring glory to the name of Jesus? In his calling, dear mom, 
he has made sure that as you bend your knee to him, your diaper changing is to his glory. And one day at the end of days, when God declares his glory and all the things he's done in human history, the diapers you change to his glory are going to be evidence to the great majesty and the name of Jesus. What God can do that? What God can take stinky diapers and wring out of them 100% glory as a mom gives herself sacrificially to her children and to their service? Every part of what we do, from the most mundane to the biggest, every human event are 100% about the name of Jesus, which is why we never take his name in vain. So precious to us. So why don't we conclude by praying in that name. Father, thank you for revealing to us, not just your names, but your name. Revealing to, our, to us, not just moments of angels or seas splitting or the sun staying put in the sky or axe heads floating, but revealing to us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect God and perfect man, and giving him that name that is so precious and dear to us. Lord, would you mark our days and our life as individuals, as family, as friends, as community groups, as a church, as a people who were growing forever in our love for the name of Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. And we stand and respond in song.